Welcome to Behavior Grooves, the podcast that explores stories, science, and secrets from the world's brightest thought leaders for the curious at heart. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We like to investigate the aspects of behavioral science that will improve our well-being, our relationships, and our organizations by helping you find your groove. From best-selling authors to researchers, we share insights from the sharpest minds in the world. Okay, Tim, I wanted to start with a question. Is it possible for you to really love one of your guitars? <laughs> I think that's a good question. I'd say yes. Uh, yeah, because, you know, saying we love something or someone doesn't mean that we want to marry them. Uh, you you know? love it. You're going to marry it. <laughs> Tim loves his guitar. He's going to marry it. Hey, yeah. That sounds like a playground thing, right? Isn't that totally? That's I, okay, well, yeah, okay, I'm sorry. So I, I interrupted. Go on. You're not going to marry my... your guitar. I did hear about no. the guy that married his motorcycle, though, but what, that's a whole separate story. We'll <laughs> Well, I love my wife. I love my children. I have good friends that I love. And I've had experiences that I would say I absolutely love, like loving the experience of marrying Katie on the beach, you know, on Martha's Vineyard. I mean, I'd also say that I love our relationship, Kurt. Oh, look at that. I wish the listeners could be seeing that. <laughs> Hands over my heart and the little puppy yeah. dog eyes as I'm <laughs> gazing at you fondly over the video chat thing here. Oh, <laughs> okay. We can classify all of these as love, right? Uh, but they're all different, right? And we're comfortable saying that we love them. And that's, and that's all fine. And I would say that I do love some of my guitars. The biggest love that I probably have is my 1972 Martin. I've, I've had it since it was almost brand new. And that's a long time, right? You know, that's a, a long connection to have with a thing. And I'm definitely comfortable with saying that I love it. Yeah. How about you, Kurt? Yeah, I mean, I, there's definitely things that I would probably... To your point, I would classify as I love. Will I marry them? No. I mean, I'm married already. That would be against the law. Um, but, you, you know. <laughs> do, do you love your car? No, you I don't. Know? I'm not a car guy, right? I'm not yeah, that car yeah, guy. Okay. I, I will say there are some books that I absolutely love. There are, you know, the house that we live in, the cabin that my, you know, that is in our family. I love those places. And, you know, for me, that that has some meaning in it. It's 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 important. So, yes. I think that is definitely there. So I would say that I love things, not just people. Yeah. Okay. So all that wraps back to this discussion that we had with Aaron Ahuvia. He is a professor at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor's Ross School of Business. He also has appointments at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor's Penny W. Stamp School of Art and Design as well as the Center for Middle Eastern and North African Studies. So cool, right? <laughs> oh, my God. Um, He's also the author of several books and papers, which, by the way, I have to just say one of my favorites is is called Dr. Seuss Felicitator. What what is Felicitator? <laughs> okay, so for those of you who aren't familiar with the term Felicitator, which like me before I read this, a Felicitator is someone who brings happiness to others. Oh, so we're kind of like Felicitators for the world. Isn't that right, Tim? Uh, Sort of, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, our conversation with Aaron should absolutely make you happy. And we discussed very interesting and important topic of loving the things in our lives, why we love them and how that love can change over time. And this is especially true with brands and products and sporting teams and neighborhoods. And I guess one of the big takeaways from our conversation with Aaron is just to let go of this notion that it might be a bad thing to love something. It's okay to love your favorite band and your favorite team and your phone and your college sweatshirt. Just just love them, man. Just let love flow. 
I feel like we could just like be doing a hippie thing here. Yeah, from, dude, you, know, you gotta just love, love right? just let it love go, man. Yeah. Okay. So love, just love what you love. Right. And with that groovers, we hope that you just sit back with an overflowing cup of love and enjoy our conversation with Aaron Ahuvia. Do, do you think they love the cup? Do they love the cup that they're drinking that love out of? <laughs> Maybe they're talking. All right. I, I think we should go on with the episode. All right, let's go. Aaron Ahuvia, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Well, thank you very much. It's great to be here. It is just fantastic to see you, to talk to you in person after all these years of reading your material. And I get to start speed round with a question. And this is dating back to a 2013 paper you wrote, by the way, about the hijacking effect on of ambient scent. So just to give you a hint, all right. But what do you love more? What do you love more? The scent of coffee or the taste of coffee? Because they're kind of the same thing. Ah. I'm going to go with the taste. <laughs> you know, these are supposed to be easy questions. And I know that we started kind of a hard Sorry. one there. But yeah. Okay. So taste and, and scent kind of help us understand a little bit. I know speed round, but I want to get into this a little bit. We'll take a tangent here. So same thing. You like it, well, it yeah, impacts because, it, right? I mean, your taste, when you taste something, it's partly the taste buds in your mouth. And as I'm sure everyone's pretty aware, it's part, it's largely the aroma coming up and being, you know, through your sense, your smell senses is, is what the flavor really is. Mm -hmm. But there are things, coffee is one, bacon tastes very good, but smells even better than it tastes. So that's, that's, that can happen too. Yeah. There's some interesting things we were talking about earlier about marketing and trying to, how marketers try to yeah. convey smell when you can't do that over a television or a radio ad and it's the sounds right. and various different pieces with it any fascinating stuff but we have a speed round to get to and so <laughs> okay. i'm gonna go on to question number two would you rather have dinner with your favorite athlete or your favorite musician oh musician no oh, easy good. that was an easy Super question. Okay. Easy. anybody come to mind oh i've got so many favorite musicians how about because i think he'd be fun Corey wong Corey Wong is a yeah, sort wow. of a jazz funk guitarist. Mm -hmm. I just love his stuff. And uh, Corey, if you ever hear this, you want to get dinner sometime? <laughs> look me up. I'm sure he's a listener. Behavior grooves. I'm sure the word I'm has sure. already gone out. Yeah. yeah, plan on dinner reservations in the next week or so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Third speed round question: Can you cheat on a brand? No. <sighs> you can feel like you're cheating on a brand. But you don't know brands, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the last speed round question. Can you really love your car? Can you really love, you know, a thing? Absolutely. And I'm since it's the last question, I'm going to use it to segue into a longer answer. Great. Because that is one of the very first questions I had. Um, there are people who really when they think about this think well you can love a person but you know things you're it's just a metaphor you're not really loving those things but if people are, are their own guide i've asked people i used to as a standard question you know when you say you love your car do you really love your car you just mean that sort of metaphorically it's not sort of using the word loosely and overwhelmingly people say no no i i really fully love my car and i'm going to trust them if that's how they feel about it for sure but it is a different kind of love 
So if you think about it, like romantic love is different from the love we feel for our children. Mm -hmm. And so there's different kinds of love. And the love we feel for things is certainly different from other kinds of love we feel for people. So it's not identical, but it, but it is real. Yeah, but to some degree, isn't this love of things kind of a elevation of our consumerism? Yeah, it can be at times, for sure. It's also just a, to be, a lot of times people use, do use the word love metaphorically. So what they usually mean by that is like if someone says, oh, I love your haircut, they don't really love your haircut, right? <laughs> Especially mine for, for yeah. everybody. There we go. Yeah. They just, just mean it's a really good haircut. That's all they're saying, right? And what we learn from that is that thinking something is really good is a super core aspect of love. It's really important. It's so important that people will use the word love just to refer to that one partial aspect of love as a metonym when they're speaking. But love goes way beyond that. And, and part of what I think is really interesting about love is, you know, when we say we love an object or an activity, yeah, we think it's really good, but there's more in addition. And so what I get into in the book and what I find really interesting is what, what is all that more that, that you get with love that goes beyond just thinking it's excellent? Yeah, because one of the things in, you know, kind of getting the book when, when it was sent to us, and I'm kind of looking at this, and my initial take on this before I even opened up, and obviously you got into some of these deeper pieces of this, is isn't the way that, I mean, we the, when we talk about loving things, isn't that really just a, a deeper dose of liking to the next level? I like this more than I like mm -hmm. anything else, but it's still liking, it's not love. But then you go into all of these different aspects that kind of say, well, no, it's a little bit more than that. So maybe just a glimpse that granted, you know, to summarize a 200 plus page book in a couple minutes is probably, you know, effort and futility. But can you kind of at least give a little bit of an understanding for our listeners about what some of those differences are? Yeah. So to start with, one of the questions that I ask people when they sort of, I reply to a question with a question, <laughs> is I say, well, what about nature? Can people really love nature? And most people are like, yes, that's fine. Yeah, people can really love nature. <laughs> and then I say, well, what about someone who's really patriotic? Could they really genuinely love their country? And most people are like, yeah, they could love their country. How about religious people? Do they love God? In, at least in my theological views, God is not a person, right? <laughs> They're like, oh yeah, I, you know, religious people, they can love God. So what we really see to begin with is that when people say, oh, you can't love your cell phone, they're getting at a, an important aspect of love, which is that love has a sacred feeling. Love mm. connects us to things in a deep way. Love is profound. It gives us a sense of meaning in our life. And many psychologists and philosophers have argued that the things we love or the ideas or the things we have commitments to in that way, they're what really give you a sense of meaning and purpose in your life. So it's existentially very important to us in terms of the sort of the philosophical term use of the term existential. And if the things we love don't have that sense of meaning or purpose to them, then that we say, oh, it's just like it, right? I like it. And actually an example that I think is really interesting about liking versus loving was a study that was done quite a few years ago on people. And they asked people for your spouse, how much do you love your spouse? How much do you like them? And then for your friends, how much do you love them? How much do you like them? And uh, people loved their spouse much more than they liked their friends. 
but they liked their spouse about the same amount as they liked their best friends. So you can tell from this, there's more to love than just a really strong case of liking. And one of the first things is that sense of deeper purpose. What surprises a lot of people, especially people who are, okay, I'm going to say it sort of progressive, academically oriented intellectuals who've been raised in, like I was raised, that materialism is a really bad thing, and I think it can be a bad thing. We tend to just think it's too consumerist to have those sense of profound feelings around commercial objects. And that's why we want to say, no, if it's a, if it's a product, yeah, you can love nature, but you can't love your phone or your car. But one of the things that I discovered in the research is how people do invest even sort of mundane objects with this deeper sense of meaning in their life. Um, And we can talk about how they actually go about that at some point too. So then is the opposite of love. uh, So let's, let's say you love your sports team. Let's say you really love your sports team. Absolutely. Huge fan, right? Mega fan. Then why don't we see is sort of the level of anger with sports fans. There's always sort of an amelioration, you know, when I, I you know, dear friends who are really focused on supporting their team, but when the team loses, it's like, well, you know, they had some trouble, but you know, I mean, this one guy, he was really bad, but, but really it, it wasn't so bad. Why don't we hate, you know, our sports teams sort of more when they fail? Oh, that's a really good, that's a great question. First of all, there's a researcher, Sarah Broadbent, who did research specifically on people who love sports teams and she was doing this in Europe, and we found that with the f- soccer slash football fans in Europe, they felt, many of them, that clear sign that you love a sports team is that you're angry with them if they lose. If you're not really mad at them if they lose, you don't really love your sports team. I would disagree with that. I, I hope that these people would learn a way to enjoy sports without having all that negative repercussion. But that was sort of their take on it. Yet I think what happens a lot is that, you know, the sports team becomes very much a part of your own identity. Mm-hmm. And since it's part of who you are, and we know that because we, we talk about them and say, we won, we lost when we didn't even get up off the couch, much less <laughs> you know, win the game. Uh, yeah. So they're very much a part of your identity. And when you fail, you make excuses for yourself. Yeah. You know, so you get mad at yourself to a certain extent. But if you're psychologically healthy, you don't beat yourself up too much. You try and figure out what your mistakes were and how you're going to fix it. And then you move on and don't let it, you know, destroy yourself over that kind of thing. In fact, I've long had this idea as a sideline. And if any listeners want to actually do this, there's like a million dollars, many millions of dollars to be made here. But I've wanted to write a book called The Happy Sports Fan that would be about how you can watch sports and really keep the joy when you win, but not be so upset when you lose. Um, and I know people who have used to be sports fans have quit watching sports because they found the pain of losing was so strong. And that was the only way they could figure out to get rid of that pain. See, you just have to be a Minnesota Timberwolves fan because you lose so often that it just becomes the only way you can even do anything is to just have that. It's Aaron, I'm 
facetious there, obviously. Said the guy who is a like multi-year season <laughs> ticket holder. <laughs> it's interesting when we talk about sports and fans and the love of that, because I've always found this interesting. And I even for myself is like the team that you love is comprised of players who get changed out every year, coaches who are, you know, gone after three or four years, ownership who changes. Nothing about the team is the same in 10 years as it is now. And yet we still hold that as it is a team. And I think it might go back to the part that you just talked about is it's part of our self-identity that I am a Timberwolves fan or I am a you know, Yankees fan or I am whatever, you know, sports team that you pick. But I don't know if you have any deeper insight into that. Yeah. First of all, there was a comedian, it might have been Jerry Seinfeld, but don't quote me on that, who had this whole riff on this. He said, like, you know, they change the players over time and the coaches. The only thing that's consistent is the uniform. So when you say you love rooting for a team, you're just rooting for the uniforms. That's the only thing that that really goes on, you know, that's consistent there. (laughs) I think it's the same problem of identity over time that we have with people. I mean, your skin cells change, all the cells in your body change out every however many years it is, right? I don't know if that's literally true or not, but but that, you know, is is it something that's said that's going around? But we do, in our mind, attach a consistent and coherent identity to things. Um, Often, I think, much more than they deserve. But that has to do with, I think, the way we... Just relate, you do that with the business also, yeah. right? Even though the people who work at the business change all the time, you'll feel like you have an attachment, a liking or a dislike for that business. And it does sort of have some consistency, at least in the case of the business, because there, there's a culture that gets passed down, mm-hmm. even yeah. if the individuals change. And, and that may be true with the team, but you're not really loving the team because of some culture. You're just loving it because it's the local team yeah. and it's part of your own sense of identity. Yeah. So I tend to think of love as um, is implying that there's some relationship, even when we're talking about the the sacred, you know, you're talking about the, the sacred, the profound, there's some relationship with nature, for instance, in, in our love. But how, how does that work when it comes to mobile phones and cars and things like that? When, I mean, the phone can't really reciprocate, to, you know, in that, right. in that relationship. Right. So obviously the phone, like its behavior won't change whether you love it or not. It will respond to the commands you give it. (laughs) Um, And that's very different from a person because if you form a mutual loving relationship and, and friendship is a form of love. So whether it's a friendship or a romantic relationship or a family relationship, that love will change your behavior towards that other person and will change that person's behavior towards you. So it it really makes a difference there. And I believe that part of the reasons humans evolved to love and have the capacity for love is to be able to create these relationships where, you know, I'll help you and you help me and we have this greater sense of teamwork there. So that's kind of in a way misplaced on objects, but we do it anyway. And we do it with objects if we feel like they respond to us in some way. So your cell phone you know, you say things, it says things back, you know, Mm. it's not really responding to your emotions, but it is responding to you. And also, for example, if you're using a tool, like you're a musician and you have an instrument, you know, you pluck the strings, the string vibrates, it makes a noise, you hear the noise it makes, you're feeling like it's responding back to you in a way and it becomes kind of an interaction. 
And so what I found in the research is that when the, the object we're working with has this kind of interactive quality, like a car that you're driving and you control it and it moves, very often that enhances the sense of love people have in part because it gives you a sense of this relationship. I just want to say as a guitar player, amen. Yeah. <laughs> just big, a big, bold amen to that. But let's dive a little deeper on this evolutionary side. I think that you teed up something that's really interesting here. Does this love of objects have an evolutionary basis? Is it deeply seated in our DNA? My thesis, one of the things I talk about in the book, my personal take on the evidence is that loving objects is sort of a happy accident. Hmm. Um, We did not, you know, there was no evolutionary pressure for us to love objects, mostly because for most of our evolutionary history, we just didn't have any object. Maybe a rock at some point or a <laughs> stick, but it, you know, it wasn't really a big part of our life. So I don't think it evolved that way. However, we did evolve to love humans, certain other humans, uh, first in the context of the family, um, our children and our mate, and also our extended family. And then as we started living in groups that were sort of smaller groups, but with non-genetically related individuals or, or only distantly related individuals, humans and some other animals evolved the capacity for friendship. And that became a huge part of our success as a species, our ability to work as a team, right? No individual person is sort of going to hunt a lot of big game, but you could as a team, there's a lot of things you could do as a team you couldn't do as an individual. And love makes teams better. Any coach will tell you that. One of the first things you need to do as a coach is get the people on the team to, they may not use the word love, but that's what they're doing, get them to love each other. So it evolved for that. For people, we carry it over to objects. And that's why you get all these really weird, kooky kind of carryover effects things that make sense for people, but don't make sense for objects, but we do them anyway. You know, one example is that when, you know, women are in the particularly fertile part of their menstrual cycle, they look around for attractive men, right? A little bit more than they do in other parts of their cycle, which makes perfect evolutionary sense. But they also are more likely to look at new brands at that point in their cycle, right? And there's no biological reason for them to do that. It's just a (laughs) spillover from this biological process that makes sense for people, and it kind of spills over onto other things. And we have, our brains does, has those spillover effects a lot. Another one that I think is really interesting, it's a little different, is that if you smell food, you salivate, and it makes sense because when you you want there to be moisture in your mouth, easier to chew the food, and and the saliva has enzymes that start digesting the food the minute it gets into your mouth, so it's got a function there. But if you take guys who really love sports cars and you show them a really good looking sports car, they will start to salivate literally. <laughs> so again, there's no logical reason it's not going to help them with the car. But it's just a spillover effect from this other process. And when it comes to the things we love, it, in my view, it's a whole mountain high of spillover effects of different kinds. It's interesting because this evolutionary component, I think, is really fascinating when that spillover effect on different things. 
And one, this may not be related at all, but one of the interesting pieces that you brought up in the book was that you brought you brought up this idea that we love the things that we use often. And you shared a really interesting story about a woman and her iPod. Right. But then, you know, she said she loved her iPod, but she had a long commute every day for work. And so she listened to it every day for this long time, but then she got a different job. She didn't have to the commute and she didn't listen to it. And so she no longer loved that iPod as much. And so mm-hmm. this idea that, the things we use often are those people around us, as we said, in that small group and different pieces. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if there's any insights that that can give us about the nature of love. Is love just this thing because it's, you know, around us all the time? Is it, is there aspects of that? Help explain that a little bit. This was one of the most initially confusing and interesting findings in my research. So one of the things I do very commonly is I'll have people list a bunch of things that they love. It could be activities, objects, brands, products, whatever it is. So they'll list them. And then I just say, okay, put them in order from the most loved to the least loved. And then we go through the list and you say, why is this one more loved than this other one or less than this other one? Make mm-hmm. those comparisons. I would have thought that the most common answer would be something like, well, this one is more emotionally rewarding or it's better or you know, something like this, by far the number one reason why they like A more than B is that they spend more time each day using A than they do using B. So it's a straight out quantitative comparison. And I found that just bizarre. But then I was doing some research and uh, we wanted to know about the strength of people's relationships with other people. And so we found a very well-established scale that measures how strong a person's relationship with another person is. And what are the questions right up there? It's how much time each day do you spend with this other person? Turns out to be a big predictor of this. So I realized, oh, that's what's going on. This is sort of an analogy, a metaphor to these personal relationships. And it's it's a a measure in their mind of the strength of the relationship that they have with that uh, other object Mm -hmm. comes out in how much how much they interact with it. Is is there a part of that that is the kind of the rationalization after the fact that I'm spending all this time, therefore I must love it, as opposed to, you know, it, that it's an integral part of it? Is it is it more of an after effect from your perspective or, or is there research to support or not support that? Do you know? I don't know of a lot of direct research on that specifically. My best guess is that's part of the story that okay. people, you know, that makes a total sense that people would do that, yeah. um, a sort of a cognitive dissonance thing. Mm-hmm. Um, however, when I talk to people about the things that they love, it's really clear, like the example that you were just mentioning, the woman with her iPod, where, you know, she used to love her really her iPod a lot, and then she her commute changed, she spends less time with it each day. Now she loves it a lot less. It's really clear that there was some sort of a causal thing from the amount of time you spend with this to your perception about how much you love it. And I should also add, hopefully, obviously, the time has to be positive, right? If you spend a lot of time (laughs) with something and you hate the time you spend with it, that's not going to help you love that thing uh, anymore. So me and Tim spending a lot of time together won't necessarily make it love each other. I, I get this. All right. Yeah. We can do the couples therapy you know, <laughs> from, our, from other show. 
<laughs> That's episode two. Um, Aaron, you you are a self-proclaimed audiophile. Uh, what about loving the music versus loving the equipment that's playing the music? So this is, I think, a very broad issue. A lot of times we tend to love activities and objects that go with those activities. So um, I love mountain biking and I love my mountain bikes. I love music and I love my what, my former record collection and <laughs> I love my audio equipment, you know, that sort of are all packaged together as part of that uh, experience. But there are times when you can get so caught up with the objects that instead of supporting the thing that you love and this activity that you love and being part of that, they can come to almost interfere or to have other negative outcomes. Um, I remember meeting a guy in a bike store who was talking to me about he was going to buy, it was like his seventh, I don't remember the exact number, something like his seventh bicycle and how his wife, he brought home, he said, if I bring home another bike, my wife's going to kill me because we don't really have a good place to store them and I'm spending all this money. But he just went and spent like $6,000 on a, on a new mountain bike just because he had become kind of obsessed with the objects instead of just, you know, using them as, as a part of a nice part of the activity. And you can get that. I, I see that a lot with audiophiles. I feel it myself. Sometimes I find myself when I'm listening to music, paying more attention to what my stereo sounds like than I am to what the music sounds like. <laughs> and I think that's a sort of a shame um, so I've taken some efforts here and one is I often read while I'm listening to music and I've made a point of reading information about the artists that I'm listening to and doing that really helps me connect more deeply with the music and kind of avoiding the endless reading of audio reviews about a new amplifier or a new piece of equipment that's come out. Because all that reading does is make me love my current stuff less and think more about, you know, how I want to replace it with something else. And that's not, that's not healthy for me. So I, I, I've taken steps to, to really address the issue. I got to say, this is really hard as a guitarist. I mean, because each instrument is different. Each instrument, yep. you know, I mean, James Taylor's talked about how each of his guitars has a voice and you right. go to different instruments to get different voices. And the musicians have talked at length about how they're inspired differently. But and I, I absolutely feel that there's certain songs that I've written on certain guitars that I never would have written on other guitars. I'm certain of it. But wow. And there's nothing wrong with that. And there's nothing wrong. <laughs> okay. really, no, there's nothing wrong with that. And there's nothing wrong with loving stuff. There's nothing bad about the physical world. There's, you know, some of this, if you think, I have a degree in philosophy from a, yeah. uh, my undergraduate career. And a lot of the idea that there's something wrong with loving stuff comes partly from these ideas that there's something the matter with the physical world, that there's a separate mm. spiritual world, which is better than the physical world. And everything that we have in the physical world is just corrupted and not worth our time. Whereas I think, especially as we have more ecological concern, that it's useful to realize that the physical world is fabulous and there's nothing the matter with it. And there's nothing matter with loving things that are part of 
uh, the physical world. And in fact, from an ecological perspective, people who love their cars keep their cars longer, mm. right? Which is generally a good thing. Reducing consumption in that sense is generally a good thing. For cars, might be the one exception because you want people to sell their gas guzzler and buy an electric car. <laughs> yeah. So that's a little, that's a, an unusual situation. Um, but for the most part, if you keep things longer, that's a good thing. And so people who love things repair them and keep them. However, you have to ask yourself, okay, is this supporting my love of music or is it replacing my love of music? Yeah. And if it's supporting it and you can afford it, my wife is a doesn't do this, but she's a musician. She doesn't really collect guitars that much, but of her musician friends, they, they all, like if they're guitarists, they all collect guitars. <laughs> that, that's completely this standard, I think. Well, yeah. it's interesting when you talk about this idea of does it support that love? And you talked about the the mountain biker and you know, you start with the love of mountain biking, but then it gets, you know, with seven or eight bikes. And is it enhancing that love of mountain biking or is it replacing it with something else that may not have the same impact? And I'm thinking the same thing when you guys are talking about listening to music mm -hmm. versus listening to the stereo. And the intent of the equipment is to listen to the music. But if you get caught up in listening to the stereo, mm -hmm. it, there's a there's a part and you've obviously identified this for yourself that that detracts from that that first love that you had because you're not able to, to enjoy that as much. And the guitars that that Tim's talking about, you know, they're different voices. So I think to that point, it's probably enhancing that love of the music because it's a different piece. And so I think there's a fine line that we can pick and kind of choose. And I don't know if it's a big gray line or a very thin line, but I think there's something there that that can be used as a kind of a, a measure to say, is this a good thing or is this not so good thing? You know? Right. And to make it even more complicated, um, <laughs> a lot of times the loving the objects and purchasing objects becomes a way of expressing your love for the activity. Mm. So it's like, I love mountain biking. I love it so much. I want to do something to like reflect that love and buying another mountain bike is something that I can do that just sort of reinforces mountain biking as part of my identity and expresses the, the love that I feel, you know, for that activity. And same with like buying another guitar can do that. So yeah, it, they're very bound together. Is, is part of that social because you get to talk about the mountain bike with your buddies or with other people like you in the in the mountain bike, bike shop and all of those factors? Is that part of that draw to that? Oh, that's a huge, amazing, huge, good point. Because one of the things that I found in my research, so just to backtrack for just a moment, we were talking at the beginning about how the things we love, we see them as excellent, but simply something being excellent isn't enough to love it necessarily. Yeah. You know, many, many people in the world think that Mercedes makes excellent cars, but most of them don't love Mercedes cars. Hmm. So that's not enough. You need other things. Well, what are these other things? There's basically three big ones that make the, the object feel in your, to your brain more like a person. And one of the ways that your brain starts thinking about an object the way it thinks about a person is if you connect the object with a person. So a photograph of a person, 
your wedding ring or engagement ring that connects you to another person, all of a gift received from this other person, all sorts of objects that sort of connect you to other people. And this is obvious if it's a photograph of, of a person, but it's very true for sports. One of the great things about being a sports fan especially among men, is it gives you something to talk about with other people and enhances those connections. And it also, you get together with your buddies and you watch the game together. And you can't really separate your love for sports from your love for your friends that you connect with over sports. One way, just the last one that I think is kind of neat that you can tell if this is going on is think, what would happen to my feelings about this object if my feelings about the person changed. Uh, so if you have, you know, an object, if you think, well, if I had a huge fight with this person and really never wanted to speak with them again, you if you the object's connected to the person, then you don't want the object either. So it kind of rises and falls with the people. The wedding ring after a divorce. You know, <laughs> yeah. that, that, the wedding yeah. ring after a divorce. Right. Yeah. 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 Been there. That <laughs> <laughs> yeah. to get to. Uh, you talked a little bit, I want to migrate uh, back into the music realm, just because it's so sure. much fun. You talked about reading about artists. I think this is really cool while you're listening to music. But do you listen to music while you work? I do listen to music while I work. And I have music that I listen to, especially. It's very interesting. If I'm working really hard in, in some situations, I'll, I will definitely turn off the music. It can be a distraction. Okay. And there are other times when it actually helps me focus. And really? I do tend to listen to, well, the music can't have lyrics. And I, there's a, a style of music um, called ambient that mm -hmm. um, was sort of pioneered by Brian Eno, who's a favorite musician, composer, songwriter of mine. And I listen to a lot of ambient music when I'm working because it was designed for that. It was designed intentionally to be something that you could listen to in you know, with focus, and it would be interesting, but you could also put it on the background and it would not distract you too much in that way. So, yeah. Interesting. Uh, so if you were to be stuck on a desert island for a year, are there a couple of artist catalogs that you'd want to take with you? That's really funny because there's actually uh, a catalog of Brian Eno's music that's called The Desert Island Mix. <laughs> If I oh, I didn't stuck, know that. If I, yeah, if I was stuck on an island for a year, what Brian Eno music would I take? Of you? He's, already got, He's <laughs> already got it. He's already got it set. He's already got that done. Yeah. Wow. Um, but, um, oh, absolutely. I, you know, and I'll tell you something that's kind of funny, though. A number of years ago, I switched to streaming music mm -hmm. systems, and they now sound great. You know, I use uh, Cubuzz, which has just tremendous good sound quality. It's not the only one. There's many of these stream others that also will, will do this. And as a result, I put music into playlists. I listen to my playlists and I don't know who I'm listening to anymore a lot of the time. Wow. I, you know, people ask me, who are your favorite musicians? And I'm like, I can tell you who my favorite musicians used to be, but now I have no idea who a lot of my favorite musicians are Wow. because I just hear the music. I can tell you the name of the playlist. Yeah. And so I've been trying of late to go back to listening to CDs. So instead of making playlists, I'll just uh, earmark a particular CD and I'll listen to the whole thing straight through so that I can create some sort of a connection 
to the person who's, who's making this music. It's interesting, Aaron. I found the same thing. So I switched over to streaming, listening to the different elements, and you put it on a playlist or you select an artist and then that it kind of identifies other artists in a similar genre and you go, oh, that's exactly, a really yeah. cool sound. That's a really good, good song. But you don't necessarily know who's, who's playing it. You have to take the energy to go back in there and look back or look at the moment and you often don't do that. And so to the, your point, I haven't gone back to CDs, but I've specifically gone back and gone, all right, I search through what I just listened to and go, oh, yep, I like that. And I, I, I like it, mm-hmm. I heard it. And then I will make a playlist based upon that artist and go forward from there to kind of reinforce right. that so I see it when I'm doing it. But that's a, it's an interesting piece of how music has changed over you know, in our lifetime from albums to CDs to the streaming kind of component and the impact that's had. Yeah, absolutely. And I wonder if, you know, I know people are listening to less music than they used to, even though it's easier than ever, which is sort of interesting. I think the main culprit for that is video Mm. games. It's just video games are so good at what they do. It's, you know, that they they decrease the amount of time people spend watching television, which, of course, in my view, is probably a good thing. I think that, you know, I'm, I'm not going to tell you, like, you're not spending enough time watching TV. Um, <laughs> but can you love a television on. show? Come on. <laughs> I do. I love my TV. I, it's generational. People, myself, my wife, people of our generation, we love our yeah. Netflix and, you know, HBO. But my kids' generation, they watch yeah. less. Yeah. Um, I've actually, there's, it's also interesting. The statistics are that they use uh, less drugs and they have fewer sexual yeah. partners. Again, not a bad thing necessarily for anybody, but you know, I was talking to my son about this and his theory is that, well, we spend too much time playing yeah. video games to, to be doing that stuff. So wow. tell you when I, when I was that age, a video game would not have taken me away from some of those other alternatives. A hundred percent agreement with you there. Yes. I can see, however, th- that's a snarky comment. I have my apologies to all the younger listeners. All, it's all context though, right? It's all context. But I, I do understand that, you know, the way it works is that you don't get into those romantic activities until you have put a certain amount of time in those relationships. And if you're, you know, if you're playing video games instead of investing that time in the relationship, then yeah, your, your sex life is going to go down as a result of that. Even if you don't necessarily prioritize yeah. a video game over your sex life directly. Habits and routines, they make a difference. Yeah. Uh, let's just say this has been a fantastic conversation. And Aaron Ahuvia, thank you so much for being a guest on Behavior Groups today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I love talking with you guys anytime. This was really fun. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our discussion with Aaron, have a free-flowing conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our cup-loving brains. Oh, oh so you're back to this. You, we you love the cups this. that the love is in, Tim. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Sorry, I had to go back to the intro. I I know it's bad. We probably even, you know, we'll edit that out anyway. And people won't understand what I'm talking about here. And it'll no, just be no. this whole weird thing. They're going, oh, Kurt's off his rocker again. Okay, so what did you take away from our conversation with Aaron Kurt? Love is complicated, you know? It's complicated. And yeah. this idea, I think the big thesis, right, is that you know, we might need better words to describe some of this, but right now the way that we have and can describe our feelings that love is a good word to describe our relationship, not just with the people that we love, but with some of the things and events and experiences that we have. And it's a good way of talking about it. And again, I think, you know, the Greeks had multiple words of different types of love, and don't ask me what they are because I won't remember agape and agave and I don't know. Felicity. And agase and I don't know. I'm making that up. But I think that the idea that we love things is is known and that, you know, yeah, we shouldn't feel bad about that. And yeah. Agreed. Let's we could start by also saying that um, loving things and not just people, they can all be different. Mm-hmm. Right. They can all of those aspects of love can be different. Like teams can be loved for the uniform and not the players. I, did did you just love that? Oh my god! Honestly, did you love that concept of talking about loving a team and not just the players? Well, it's it's. I mean, think about that, right? You you love this team. I, before we got on, you were talking about the you know nineteen sixties Cardinals and the players on that who are long gone, but you still talk to yeah. people. And that's what they think about when they talk about this. But they still love the Cardinals, even though. Those guys are dead. They're gone. You know, a variety yeah, of different pieces. Luke Brock, Bob Gibson, yeah. great, great players, but they're gone. Yeah, but people still love the team. Yeah, and, and, and you, you love the Timberwolves, even though they're not a winning team. Yeah, they. Yeah, <laughs> I know it's kind of sad. <laughs> um, we in our happiness episode, right? We learned that with uh, with Seth. We learned that I should not go to the games to root the Timberwolves. I should just go to root the game because you know the the net happiness of losing outweighs any net gain I ever get from them winning. Anyway, but that brings up a point, and I think this was an interesting piece that comes from this whole conversation, is this idea that do you love the team? Do you love the players on the team? Is the is the team, does the team love come first or does the player love come first? And then if a player leaves the team, do you now hate that player or do you still follow that player and love that player? I mean, there's all these different complications that go on with all of this kind of stuff, right? I, and going back to the Greeks, I think that they plumbed this whole story with the the, the ship of Theseus story. Well, tell us about the ship of Theseus, Tim. <laughs> tell me about I, the boards on the ship of Theseus. You, I know that I, for listeners who haven't listened to every episode, I just love this this story. But this is a wonderful example of where Theseus was a captain of, of a ship in ancient Greece. And he would go into battle and the ship would get beat up. And so the, uh, so he would come back to a particular beach where where the workers would pull the broken boards off and set, set them on the beach and then put new boards on and send him back out to, to fight. And battle after battle, year after year, the whole ship gets replaced. And so the, the question is, where is the ship of Theseus? Is it all the original boards that are laying on the shore or is it the boat that is actually under? Theseus's feet. And I think that this is a really interesting question. Like, do we love the team because of the player or do we love the team just because it's the team? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And 
this is the question. We're, listeners, you're just going to have to struggle with that for a while. Well, and it's interesting, too, given like today where teams move, right? And you have a professional team and a team ups and leaves. And all of a sudden, you know, they're in a different city and you get a new team coming into there your you city. Go. Do you like the old team? Do you like the new team? Do you love? It's complicated. As we said at the beginning, it's complicated. How about a brand? Yeah. If let's, you know, let's say that I love Apple as a brand. And then uh, they do something that I think is really stupid with a computer or a, a phone or some piece of technology. Or hiring workers at subpar wages <sighs> and working them in sweatshops right. and in East India. Exactly. Yeah. So then do I still love the company even though they're doing things that I don't like? Does it deteriorate my love for the brand? Or do I, ha- and do I have a little cognitive dissonance with that? Or do I just say, you know what? I'm just going to rationalize that away and still love the brand. I think these are the problems that we have to face when it comes to loving brands. Yeah. That, that's it. All right. So, Tim, what do we love? What, what do we tend to love? What did Aaron say about that? Because I thought this was interesting. Yeah. So it's about things that we use most often, yeah. right? That we're, Isn't that it's interesting? It's so cool. And again, yeah. it's like a chicken or egg. Which comes first? Is Does the love come be, and then we use them or do we use them and then fall in love? And I think what Aaron was saying, it was the latter, right? It was more of, you know, that we tend to, it's the mirror exposure effect kind of playing in, right? So Yeah, yeah. It's there. And I also love this idea that our love for, for things changes over time, right? How many times have we said this? Context matters. Yeah. And so when, if you have a, a new family, I think of, of you know, couples that have, uh, have kids, then they love toddlers, you know? But then as the kids grow into teenagers, like they kind of long for the days that the kids were toddlers. Ah, <laughs> you, know? you love your teenagers too, just in different, again, just love changes in different, in different ways. ways, right? Yeah. It, yeah. Uh, but again, think about that, right? What I loved in my teens is different than what I loved in my 20s, which is different than what I loved in my 40s, which is different than what I love today. Yeah. Uh, it, it changes. I've talked to a bunch of guys who are retired who love pickleball. I don't know anybody in their 20s who loves pickleball. <laughs> I'm just going to say that. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. All right. So my favorite thing, Tim, and I think this is the lesson, the one lesson you need to take out of this whole, whole episode. This whole conversation with Aaron. Love the music, not the stereo. Oh, <laughs> yeah. That I think that that's great. At the same time, I love particular. <laughs> now, this is it's not a rationalization, but let's let's acknowledge that like different guitar for me, different guitars make different sounds. Yes, and and I yes. love the sounds that they make for different reasons. So I, I love certain instruments that I I well I. I I mean, I could go on with every instrument as to what I love about that instrument and about the sounds that it makes and the kind of music that I make with it. But it's still, ultimately, it really is still about the music that it makes. It's not about the instrument itself. Right. It really and, is and, about and, the music. And, well, not the stereo, right? And so this is the part that I think that, Aaron, it was really interesting. And I don't know if we had a conversation with him afterwards, too, that got into you know some of the, yeah. the finer details of this. But this idea, and I think it's a really great metaphor because this idea that I can be so focused in on getting the newest, highest tech stereo that like highlights the most minute sound and the, the I can hear the, the thing on the snare as it kind of vibrates. And then you end up focusing in on what you can hear with it as opposed to enjoying the music that you're supposed to be listening to. You're, you're, you're kind of critiquing 
the the sound as opposed to embracing and engaging in the music. And if there is one insight that I'm going to take away from this, it's going to be there are other things like that, that we focus in on what, well, what's this little thing that's wrong? What's this little thing that is not exactly like I would like it? And I tend to focus in on that as opposed to just enjoying the experience for what it is and trying to make sure that I'm focusing and loving the music and not the stereo. Could we also say that the car is really just an instrument to get you to where you want to go? but it can get you to have experiences that yeah. that Katie and I like road trips. So, you know, the car is the the tool to get us there, but really the benefit, the things that we love are what we see from the windshield, right? Or or even outside of the windshield, but but that goes back uh, Christian Hunt and his whole th- and, and and Rory Sutherland and their thing about traveling, right? And like do you travel by plane or travel by train? And the idea that the tool there, right? The plane or the train, both get you to your destination. They get you there in different times and in different manners with different experiences. And so depending upon what you're trying to maximize, you need to pick the appropriate tool to maximize that experience. experience. And so, yes, in a car, and again, if I'm driving a car that I'm afraid is going to break down and is uncomfortable and smells and makes a lot of noise and the wind is coming in and it's too hot or too cold because it doesn't have air conditioning. And that's very different than driving a nice, you know, smooth, quiet, luxurious kind of car. And so the experience that I'm having driving is very different. And they can both get me to place, you know, from A to B. And in some instances, I don't really care because it's a short little commute and who cares? It's got me, gets me there, right? And it's cheap and I save a whole bunch of money. Or in other instances, I don't. And so I think it's really important to understand that um, piece of this. So what is it that you want out of this experience? And then you can pick the tools to help maximize that. Maximize that love. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Okay. I think that's probably a pretty fair place to wrap up. What do you say? Yep. Yep. And if you find yourself, uh, listeners, saying that you love your iPhone or that you love the Grand Canyon, it's okay. It's okay. You can <laughs> celebrate that. It's great. Enjoy the feeling of love for those things. It is totally, totally okay. And, you know, and it is also totally okay to love behavioral grooves. Ah, people, if you love behavioral grooves, just shout it out. Shout it out to the world. I know that there's somebody out there that loves behavioral grooves. Just, I think there might be one, but, <laughs> but I think there's somebody out there. But if you are one of those people, if you are that one person, we want to thank you very, very much for loving Behavioral Grooves. And we also hope that this week you'll go out and find your groove. 